we felt standard young person's apathy. What we didn't feel was antagonism. And the polling now suggests that while one third of young people don't really care, aren't really sure, there's another third now who actively don't want monarchy. And there's a reason for that. Those same young people who were apathetic until very recently suddenly bought into an idea of monarchy, a fresh idea of monarchy that didn't really exist because of this whole Meghan and Harry narrative. Hello and welcome to this coronation edition of the Aspects of History podcast with royal historian and old friend of the show, Dr. Tessa Dunlop. Now this chat is not a love-in with both of us talking about how much we adore the royal family. It's a frank and honest discussion about where the monarchy is today and how we have moved on from the last time we had a coronation in 1953. So we talk the media and their involvement in the Harry and Meghan wars, the coronation, the Commonwealth and crown finances. Finally, I have a quiz question which I put to Tessa. As royal historian, she's bound to get that right, isn't she? Please do subscribe. I've got plenty of great content coming up, including ancient Rome in the first century AD, the Trojan War, the Eastern Front during World War II, and the Film Club continues with Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk on the anniversary of the epic retreat, plus much, much more. Coming soon, I'll be introducing Patreon, where members who sign up will get bonus episodes, access to a brand new chat room, opportunities to put questions to my guests, book giveaways, and articles from top historians. So more to come on that. Until then, I'll hand you over to myself and Tessa talking the monarchy. Tessa Dunlop, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. It's very, very nice to have you on again. Well, I know people will think, gosh, she reappears like a second-hand penny. But I would like to point out that it's unlikely now, unless, heaven forbid, King Charles dies before his 25th Silver Jubilee, that I reappear for the next two and a half decades. Because it's just the glut of royal events that have led to this repeat Tessa performance. Would that be fair? Yes, although I wouldn't feel too bad. I mean, I think you're still behind Saul David as most frequent um, attendee guest. Who is he? Oh, well, in that case, I shall proudly introduce myself and just out in paperback uh, with a foreword that packs a punch at Dan Wooten and Piers Morgan, just to make this truly historic. Do you know who Dan Wooten is, even, Ollie? I, I believe he's a sort of shock jock on telly. I'm never sure shock is quite the right word, but he's a conservative polemicist. Doesn't think, that give him a, a bit of him. gravitas that perhaps he doesn't have? Yeah, well, I'm trying to phrase it right because he does get a mention in my foreword. So I'm trying to give him a sort of historic scaffolding. But um, both he and Piers Morgan and a number of others, it's unfair really just to single them out, have, I think, done something quite dangerous with our royal family. David Canadine, the historical great, who, all of whom books I'm sure you've read, but also his seminal um, take on royalty in the 20th century, that the conservative press was the lifeblood of popular monarchy. And I think what's happening at the moment with the popular press might mean that the conservative press become the death knell of monarchy. Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm sure they don't help matters. But it's the sort of Harry and Meghan saga, really, that's that's driving this, isn't it? 
Well, it's interesting. So, so you would give the momentum, would you, to Harry and Meghan? So I think... Absolutely. And it will die down, are, I would expect. Well, when the media wants it to. But Harry and Meghan are nothing without us delivering for them in terms of um, magnifying their own self-made platforms. And the Conservative press make a huge amount of money, not just talking and criticising Harry and Meghan. I mean, we've had people who've left the royal family before from Edward VIII onwards. But by driving this mighty wedge, this live wedge between the two sides, by picking goodies versus baddies, by sort of picking the royal scab. And I think, aside from the soap opera, which the voyeur in, in individuals is, is never fully sated, but actually why that's dangerous is that historically, our royal family was always sort of or seen to be above politics. I mean, even though the likes of George VI and George V were as conservative as they come, really, sort of Tory squires dressed up with a crown on their heads. But there was this idea that they were still above the fray. They somehow didn't belong to the slugging it out in the political trenches. And I think the problem with the way in which we've reported the Harry and Meghan story, the sort of soap operaization of the whole narrative, means that our royal family is now firmly in, in the trenches, in the dog whistle trenches. You know, there's Camilla, by all accounts, friends with, I don't know, Jeremy Clarkson, banging it out for free speech. And on the other side, wokety woke Harry with all his court cases and his wannabe green credentials and his uh, wife, um, who is American and a woman of colour and all sorts of other exciting things the royal family had never seen the like of before and I just think it's very sad the way that we've kind of decided the royal family is yeah part of that political narrative because it is a political narrative the culture wars are a political narrative I, I agree it's very sad but I'm not convinced that the the royal family has really added to it in any way I mean they've kept quiet the whole time of uh, during the Netflix series and the and the endless Netflix series and the and the book, they've not said a word. So perhaps you know they 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 never explain, never complain that strategy, which I quite like that actually. Okay, but that adds to my thesis, which is to park the blame a bit like Harry in some respects firmly on the lawn of the press. Hmm. Because if the royal family haven't said a word, although I thought Camilla was wrong to talk about writing and freedom of speech, but that we we can forgive that. It was a minor blip. That means that this idea that there's two camps, where does that come from? Partly from Harry and Meghan, who are outside the firm, so they can do what they like. We can judge them as we like. But the idea that the royal family are kind of almost in the in the in the in the holding, in the grip of the right wing press, that's a construct. That's a very real construct. Is if you ask a lot of people now, middle of the road people who before might have been quite apathetic about monarchy, and the polling suggests this, are now overtly antagonistic towards monarchy, especially among the younger generations. And that's partly because they're suspicious of a brand, of an institution that's so heavily backed by Dan Wooten and Sarah Vine and the Daily Mail. It's just not appealing, therefore, to a more liberal, younger set, who you need also to make this institution one of broad appeal. Possibly, but I remember during the 90s when I was obviously much younger and I didn't really pay much attention to the royal family, but when I did, it was all pretty embarrassing and, and sordid with, you know, divorces left, right and centre. And I and I think I would have been in the 40%, I think it is, of 18 to 24-year-olds who want a, 
a democratically elected head of state. But then I've grown up and seen the advantages of a hereditary monarchy, um, constitutional monarchy. So you've got old and square like everyone else. <laughs> like, you know, what the big thing for me was um, 2021, January 2021, when the supporters of Donald Trump assaulted the, um, the Capitol in Washington, D.C. And I remember looking at that and thinking, I mean, that's the, the, the most powerful democracy in the world. And yet, 18 months later, within a spate of it's just a couple of weeks, we had the change of a head of state and the change of prime minister from one disastrous prime minister to another. But it was seamless. Absolutely no threat of any kind of violence, no hint of violence. So what, you credit the royal family with that, Lee? I'm saying that the institution is the... Not not the individuals, no, but the institution itself. You don't need to preach to me. I'm I'm a monarchist. I believe in the uh, the baubles and the tinsel being separated from the likes of Trump or indeed Boris Johnson, and that's what makes our system in some ways superior to the American system. But where there is a difference, and where you are wrong to complacently say, "Oh, the young will be young; they'll grow old and square like me one day," the reason I can say that with a degree of authority that I think Ollie you lack um, is. That previously, our generation, for instance, who were like, oh, no, the Diana Carr crash, literally and metaphorically, we are the same generation. Yeah, We felt standard young person's apathy. What we didn't feel was antagonism. And the polling now suggests that while one third of young people don't really care, aren't really sure, there's another third now who actively don't want monarchy. And there's a reason for that. Those same young people who were apathetic until very recently suddenly bought into an idea of monarchy, a fresh idea of monarchy that didn't really exist because of this whole Meghan and Harry narrative. We had this action man guy with the tragic backstory, falling in love with a beautiful woman of colour, an American. The story was too good to be true. It looked like the royal family was getting this reboot. When, in fact, it was just that Harry fancied Megs and Megs fancied Harry and they got married. And so when the, the fairy story fell apart, all those young people who bought into it as a new start then felt repulsed by it and felt let down by it and, and no longer felt included or represented by it. And that is a more active antagonism than what had gone before. And that's the key difference with the anti-monarchy camp today and what went before. It's, it's driven by a sense of exclusion. And that's because of the fallout, not just around Harry and Meghan. Also, let's face it, Andrew didn't help either. Yeah, I would have thought that's far more of an impact on the on the institution than this sort of... I mean, Harry's, what, fifth in the line to the throne? And that's as good as it'll ever but, get. But, but I haven't explained it well. It was that people... You have. ...thought about monarchy differently. So Andrew never, people never bought into Andrew, so he couldn't really let them down. I mean, it was just like, oh, yeah, well, that was kind of predictable. Whereas people thought when Harry and Meghan got married and Charles gave her off down the aisle and it was all so beautiful, they thought that this very establishment institution was changing, was reforming. It wasn't. It hadn't. And then whether you believe Meghan and Harry or not, their very vocal sense of rejection has played out among the young who also not only feel rejected by monarchy because they suddenly were excited by it, 
but also like that can never be something that represents us. Now, that's a problem for monarchy going forward. So if we go back to, what, 1953, the coronation of the Queen? Oh, that's going back a long way. In my book, we talk about that. In, well, it's the I last did, time a we had a coronation. Yes. Did you know that in my foreword of my book, I talk about Dan Wooten and Piers Morgan? Yes, you but in the that. middle, I'm just mentioning it again. I'm not sure whether to tell Piers because he uses me on his show and I quite like going on there because he is one of our very few global celebrities. I mean, if you talk to people abroad, he's one of the few they've heard yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. I'd say more than um, the, the other name you mentioned. Indeed. Um, anyway, moving back to 1953. Um, but that, what was the, the, what reason, was the percentage of people who wanted a, a republic in 1953? Oh, well, tellingly, Ollie, we didn't start polling on the royal family until the 1980s because it was such a shoo-in. But the other thing is, if we're talking about younger generation apathy, the young generation, and I know because I blooming well interview those that are left for the book, they bought into Elizabeth and Philip because they were part of the same generation. Yeah. Literally. I mean, that isn't Charles's fault. He's totally ancient. He's ridiculously old, aren't you, King? Nobody really talks about it. I suppose we've got Biden these days, so Charles seems positively young. But it, I, I guess it's in, inevitable that after such a long reign, it's going to be a difficult act to follow for Charles. And then the great hope is is with the subsequent generations. Really? But, so well, that, it, it has to be, lives, doesn't it? It has to be, doesn't it? I think great hope's over-egging the pudding. Well, it is a great hope but for, the, for the monarchy. I'm talking for the monarchy. Yeah. You know, they have to. I, I'm thinking... But but I'm thinking almost, you know, if Harry and Meghan you know, run out of steam, so in the end, you know, the court cases come to their grisly conclusion and then there's another Netflix series that doesn't get as many viewers and then, you know, bye bye, it sort of fades away. Then eventually what you'll get is a very middle-aged, stolid couple. Well, I'm not sure Kate, felt Kate could be ever called a solid, stolid, but you know what I mean? William and Kate will be super middle-aged at best by the time they get to the throne. So that's... It's, it's still quite pedestrian and they're, they're hardworking and committed, but they're hardly zeitgeists of today's Britain, are they really? L let's be honest. They're absolutely the twin pillars of the establishment. They make me feel young and funky, to be honest, and they're considerably younger than I am. Yeah, no, I agree. I, th I think that's going to be a real um, problem in, in the next 10 years, even. They're going to they're going to be aging, and he won't even be the monarch of that. Assuming Charles lives for ten years, yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? The speculation know, around death. Let's let's move on to more positive things, which is the music. Can I tell you? Can I name drop? I think you're going to. <laughs> Basically, I was asked to do Radio Four's Pick of the Week this week. Oh, great! Have you heard of that? Yeah. You know, when you pick your favourite programmes on the radio. Yes. And I thought, well, I'd better do something royal. You know, I thought, God, what will I do? Is it all radio, BBC radio programmes? It has to be. Otherwise, obviously, I'd be recommending this podcast, but it has yes, to be BBC. Yes, that was what I was angling yeah. for. Um, don't worry. I've had to let a few people down. But I listened to Radio 3 because I thought I need a bit of music. And it really, and I suddenly then engaged. I hadn't done any way a bit for Elizabeth and Philip the book, but it made me engage in a contemporary way around the coronation music. So there's 12 composers who've been commissioned to write new pieces. But obviously, ever since Handel and George II's coronation, you can't not have, what is it, Zadok the Priest? Or something. You can't not have Handel, the German. 
So then I'm like, oh my goodness, Handel is like, and there was, I could have chosen a Radio 3 program all about Handel. I thought, no, it's too German. I'm thinking of today's friends, today's listeners, right? So then, and then I think, what about Elga? Elga was, it was Elga that really helped define modern monarchy, pomp and circumstance and the Mm. coronation march and all that Mm. kind of martial music. It it was extraordinary. We were almost like the drumbeat of the First World War before we'd even sent them over the top, the troops. So what what did you choose? Or are we going to have to wait and find out? Oh, sorry, I was just getting excited about the past. So that was pre, that was, um, so it was, Elga was big, obviously, for George VII and, and George V. And then I thought, well, that's a bit traditional and I want to be seen as a bit cooler and liberal. It's all about one's image, you know. So I thought, so I got my daughter to help me and we have picked some really obtuse programme on Radio 3. But the British female composer, this might mean something to you, Sarah Class was on there. And um, she's been asked to uh, do a, a composer piece. It's all kind of quite um, evocative, her music. And normally she writes tracks, wait for it, for environmental documentaries like David Attenborough's documentaries. And I think she collaborated with Green King Charles for COP26. So um, I just love the idea that of these 12 composers, Handel might have to sort of step aside for some green music, some kind of trendy rendition. I'm quite excited about how they're going to fit in, given the service can't be too long because of no attention span. They're going to have to fit in Elga. They're going to have to fit in Handel. Who else are they going to have to fit in, do we think? Vaughan Williams, probably. They should definitely have Vaughan Williams. Yeah, and then 12 other composers including some real cheesy mums. I mean, Andrew Lloyd. Oh, right. The other thing that I found really interesting about the coronation music choice, all the composers are British. Our king's king of 15 rounds. Yes, I always think that's a bit of a blind side for him. There's always such opportunity with the Commonwealth that is not taken up, and it's a bit disappointing. Yeah, and it's just so... The coronation, it feels... More English even than Elizabeth did in some respects. I don't know, it's going to be a coronation choir. I'm like, really? I think some of your composers should be from Australia and New Zealand and Jamaica. Why not? I funk it up a bit. Yes. Yes. Okay. And then, and then, but, but for the, did you see the invitation? Yeah, it was um, the invitation. It's sort of, it was a bit Merry England. That was Merry England. Sort of medieval. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful piece of artwork, but. Very English. Well, it did have the shamrock, the thistle, and the uh, and the leek as well. So, not an R folly. There was a sort of nod to the rest of the United Kingdom, but I think it could have gone further with the Commonwealth. And also, his he's king of of fourteen other realms. So the Commonwealth, he's head of the Commonwealth, which Mm. arguably should he be? That was a kind of shoe in for the Queen. But um, but he is the king of these other. Some of them are pretty ambivalent. If you look at the polling in places like Canada. So this is a real opportunity to showcase Canada, to woo a country like Canada, who you could argue post-Brexit we really need on side. And I just feel we've totally dropped the ball. Like, where are the honorary page boys from the other realms? And when I say this to people like Rob Jobson and some of the traditional press rotor reporters who are totally like in the trenches with the royal family, by the way, they're like, don't be ridiculous. You can't just have tokenistic page boys. They've got to be part of you know, King Charles's inner set. So the page boys, by the way, in case you don't notice and you haven't been reading the small print of Hello, there's there's eight of them. 
Um, four are related to Camilla, so they're her three grandsons and one great nephew. So proper posh, white posh, public school educated, including Arthur, the great nephew, whose father, I think, or grandfather was the, the Conservative Party chairman, perhaps as you'd imagine. And then you've got Prince George on Charles's side. And alongside Prince George, you've got um, Lord Oliver Chomney. I don't need to tell you much more about him, do I? You get the picture. This is, is as far as I can work out, it's, it's not only is it exclusively white and aristocratic, but also exclusively English. We don't even have a Scottish aristocrat in there or a Welsh one. An and when Irish people one. say to me, not an Irish, not on you, Nelly, not an Irish one. We're now going to get, you're going to get emails saying there's got Anglo-Irish descent or something. Put, you know, there, yeah, yeah, there are plenty of Irish aristocrats they could have in there. Well, they may have some Irish or Scottish blood, but I think all of them, from what I could work out, are based in England. And I, I, I just question the optics around that. People say, but this is like their wedding. And I'm like, no, it's not their wedding. It's our nation's state occasion. It's the crown being married to the country and to the established church and shooing in other faiths as well. So this to me, like Charles, he's had over seven decades of knowing he's going to have a coronation. Like, I'm sorry, but I might have been able to find a more diverse set of page boys in that time. I'm just saying. And and where are the maids of honour? Like, it's also quite male. Well, it's a hugely religious ceremony, isn't it? It's it it is bound so? up with all sorts of precedent. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not. I'm not saying that that's a reason not to have any any of these people in here. But um, it's I, I I suppose it's bound up with all with so much history that precedents have been set, and therefore the Earl Marshal, if I've got the right name, is feels like he can't deviate from from previous coronations. You can do whatever you like with the script. You're the head of state, you're the king. It's 70 years later, Ollie. That is not an excuse. They've gone from having tw- um, 8,000 people in the Abbey to having 2,000. Mm. Are you telling me that they couldn't? They're making up the rules. No, I'm not. T- I'm as not they telling. Go along. I'm not. I'm. I'm not. I agree with you. I think there should be a lot more representation from the Commonwealth. I mean, I, I assume that Commonwealth leaders will be, as with the Queen's funeral. At the front of a um uh, of the congregation, and the Mrs. Biden will be behind them. But I think that Mrs. Be Biden's common. irrelevant. Mrs. Biden's irrelevant. It should be the country's well, yeah, and that's the probably, king. That'll be reflected in her in her seating plan. Maybe I just think who do we talk about? We talk about the people stomping down yeah. the aisle alongside Camilla and Charles, and not tripping up on the train. And those are those page boys. And that for me is an opportunity. I would have found. You know, somebody in in Australia. I'm sure. Come on, I, I agree. for goodness sake! People have said to me. Rob Jobson said to me on Talk TV. He said, "What do you just get a token black child in?" Also, I can't. I don't want to quote him directly, but that was the inference. And I'm like, how difficult is that? Like in my friend group, I, mean, I but, we live in diverse modern Britain. Like, well, yeah, I mean, this surely is the I king has. Agree. Yeah, I wouldn't agree. It's tokenistic. But it's not token. I don't believe that King Charles, through his work with the Prince's Trust, doesn't have deep and meaningful contact with a more diverse version of Britain. I just don't believe that. I don't. I know that not to be true. So I don't understand why it's not going to be represented in his honorary page boys. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. They all have to be great nephews with Conservative Party chairman parents. 
no. talking of getting our uh, lifting our monarchy up and out of the dog whistle. But, that, but, quagmire. The, but then, presumably in 1953, you would have been driven spare with the number of aristos in the uh, sure in the congregation. That's not comparing like with like, Ollie. That's not comparing like with like. Seventy years have gone past. We've had the most extraordinary amount of social change. Yes, yeah, so I think for a start, we would have had. Wouldn't we have had a lot more? of the aristocrats in the House of Lords in place of m- members of Parliament. Yeah, and the members of Parliament can't bring their partners or wives or husbands. But I did notice that Andrew Parker Bowles is going to get in now, isn't he? Yes, yes. The yes. old roué. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm a bit of a cynic. I, I want it to work. I want it to be a success. But I do wish that the royal family had better advisors. And I do think that is down partly to our government, which we know lets us down on most fronts. So why does it surprise me it lets us down on on on, on the way in which the, the royal family is run? But even on their finances, last week, I don't know if you saw, there was a massive expose of, of royal finances that the king is basically the richest king we've ever had because, of course, wealth begets wealth. They don't pay any inheritance tax. Only the sovereign doesn't pay inheritance tax which is why Andrew's so annoyed. Well, we don't care about that. But it's also one of the reasons why Harry's so angry. Because all the money avoids tax if it just goes down Queen Charles William. So that's why, for example, Charles, not Anne, inherited the Queen's racehorses. Because Charles wasn't taxed on them. Get it? Well... Crazy. Yeah, I I agree. And I think there will come a time, probably not under this government, but if you remember in the early 90s, didn't the Queen agree to take pay income tax? So there must be a st- a point at which King Charles agrees to pay inheritance tax, one assumes. Right. But, but she agreed only on the, I think I'm right saying only on the, like the Duchy of Lancashire, only on certain parts of her portfolio. And what the weasel wording of that agreement between her and the major government was that she'd be exempt from inheritance tax. So all the press, we know the Conservative press ultimately supporting monarchy, focused on, oh, she'll pay some income tax, by the way, of her own volition. Why? Why isn't she obligated to pay income tax? He now. But there was no focus on the fact that she was exempt from inheritance tax. So the giant estates of Balmoral and Sandringham go plopping straight into Charles's lap. But OK, some would say, well, OK, it stops them being broken up. But but I say, but how many houses do they need now? I mean, ha- the, the the family's by definition got smaller because Harry's left and there's only William. If you count their properties, it's eye-watering. And the thing is, it doesn't matter to you or me, but I, it's not good optics. And it's not good optics for philanthropic monarchy. William goes, oh, help the homeless, big issue selling, and it undermines his credibility. Mm. And I, I, although I, I don't have much time for Harry. If Harry's complaining about that, I wouldn't have much time for that. I, I don't think Harry's going to be short of a few bob, is he? No, but I think it was grist to the mill of the idea of the spare, like the gulf between what you get as a spare and what you get as a sovereign. I think Harry felt that very acutely, and I don't think we can divorce that from finances. Interesting. Mm. I mean, if you think of most families. Even divvies, isn't it? I know there's primogeniture up in the Highland estates of Scotland and so forth, but for most of us, yeah, it's you want to avoid really, yeah, bad bloodshed. So, so this is a massive exception in the royal family where everything goes down the sovereign line, the line of succession to avoid tax. That's never going to. I mean, good, good luck, George, Charlotte, and Louis working that one out. That's all I'm saying. Yes, indeed. And and actually, Balmoral. So that was home to the late Queen and so forth. 
do they need Balmoral? Couldn't they just be put in trust and we could all go and visit it? I mean, we've all read about the insides of it from Harry's book. Now we'd all like to pay 20 quid and have a look around. Why, why if, he, if he had to like say forego one of the estates and, and, and the nation, it could become part of the crown estate perhaps. Is that such a terrible thing? I, I remember when Buckingham Palace was opened up in the 90s. It's, I, before I said, oh, I wasn't, didn't pay any attention to the royal family and I've just named a whole mm. load of examples for the 90s. So clearly I was paying some kind of attention. But um, I remember when they opened up Buckingham Palace and I believe Buckingham Palace is owned by the state rather than privately. Is that is that correct? So that's the other reason why the royal family get away with it because it's so complicated. People's eyes glaze over. And even when you put in freedom of information requests, it's not entirely clear who owns what. Buckingham Palace is part of the Crown Estates. The Crown Estates were bequeathed by the sovereign to the nation, the, the control or the governance of them, I think in 1760. Crown Estates are vast. They include bits of Regent Street, bits of Hyde Park. You know, it goes on and on and on. Windsor Castle, Buckingham Palace. The government takes all the... So if you imagine managing a predominantly landed portfolio like that, the government takes all the profits from that and they give the royal family back about £85 million a year called the Sovereign Grant for functioning. That's money for functioning. So that's under the government's control and it's held in the name of the Sovereign and the Crown Estates. But you also have the Duchy of Lancaster, which generates about £20 million a year, which is owned by the sovereign, which is managed for in a portfolio form by the by people on behalf of the sovereign. You also have the Duchy of Cornwall, which is now Williams, because that jumps one ahead of the sovereign. Um, and you have these two private estates, Sandringham and Balmoral, which are privately owned. So that another is, a, again, a separate category. So, so so much. By the way, the Crown Estates includes seabed and, and a sort of you know, sea windmills and all that kind of stuff. But but beyond all of that, there's stamp collections, there's art collections, there's jewellery collections, there's car collections. Now, if the cars, the cars are worth several million, the collection of Bentleys and Rolls Royces and so forth. But it's not clear whether they belong to the royal family or whether they're state property. So when Eugenie gets married, she got married and she used a very um, flash 1974 Rolls Royce. She didn't hire it. She was lent it. But if that's a state car, why did a private member of the royal family get to use it? Do you see? So once you start digging around, it's really opaque, Ollie. There's no accountability. And I think in a world of transparency and democracy, I think we need greater accountability about what this wealth that belongs to the royals is worth and why they need so much of it. I think that's a reasonable question to ask. So I think we're coming to the end of our chat have you glazed what? over as soon as you talk about royal finances people glaze over. even i even managed to make Piers morgan glaze over just for like I, well, okay i have a quiz question for you before you go right what who was it? the la last monarch to be buried before the queen in september the last world monarch or the last british monarch? No, uh, uh, british english british monarch um edward the eighth that's the wrong answer it was richard the third God, you're annoying. But it was quite good that they didn't say George V, isn't it? Yes, yes. But he was he was exhumed and reburied. So it's a slightly still buried, still counts. Mm, I think he was already buried, and then they dug him up and got reburied. So that means he was buried. Anyway, I'm the quiz master, so I get to choose what was right and what was wrong. Uh, thanks very much for joining me. What are you going to be doing for the coronation when you're not on telly? When you're back at home? Plugging my book. 
waving your uh, Union Jack. (laughs) Do you know, it's funny, this, um, this whole kind of commentariat world that I've entered into. It's quite political. Like, wh- where, what do you go on? It's like a kind of, it's like literally being a sort of street trader. You know, people approach you and you're like, it's a kind of trade-off. Do you want to talk on their platform? Is it a platform that suits you or is going to be good for your brand or is it going to damage your brand? If so, you know, what I'm saying is it's, it's dog eat dog out there. A bit of a minefield, right. Well, thank it's you very much for coming it, yeah. on. This, this will raise your profile and and raise your gravitas as well because there's some real heavyweight do you uh, think so well since i go on occasionally um lower myself to gb news people like saul david never really contacts me anymore so maybe that's it maybe now i've been on your your podcast he'll he'll think i'm back in the running do you reckon or now i've dropped pick of the week on radio 4 maybe now i've dropped that maybe they'll be back yes i'm intrigued about that because you're known for your musical knowledge and ability you're so sarcastic i did thank quite you. a lot of speech radio too thank you very much for joining us uh, the book is elizabeth and philip and it's got new material in the paperback thanks very much for joining me tessa you didn't say that very sincerely ollie what do you mean you said thanks very much for joining me tessa thank you no i, I yeah. mean that i don't say things without meaning them you sounded like you were Camilla talking to Megan then. It was such a brush off. It's all oh, right. Dear. I'm off to talk uh, well, to my cool well, friends. Thank you very much Bye. for joining me. Thanks for listening. Links are in the show notes. Plenty more content to come, as I mentioned at the start, with top historians and authors talking about the ancient world and World War II. In the meantime, thank you and good night. Good night.